so, you know, the thing about the Bible and, uh, is that it's full of really weird stuff. Yeah? Like this story. Now, might sound outrageous to suggest that the Bible's full of weird stuff, but honest to goodness, I imagine for a moment you've got friends visiting from overseas, maybe even the Shire, and you're doing the, um, uh, that'll be the last joke about the Shire norm, maybe. Um, and you're doing the regular route of tourist things around Sydney, and so what's one of the most common tourist things? You go, oh, let's catch a ferry to Manly. So you go down, get on the ferry at Circular Quay, you're heading across to Manly, and imagine there's a huge big squall comes up, big storm, and big waves, and you're going through the heads, and the waves are going, and the ferry's going up and down, and the water's coming all over. When last, when that happened, did you see someone sort of step out of their sort of, you know, obsession with their phone, look up, Walk out onto the bar, walk out onto the deck, and go to the waves. Uh, just settle down, will you? Settle down, okay? And the waves did that. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever seen that happen? Do I have a hand? Has anyone ever seen that happen? No. Well, because that's weird, right? Isn't it? No, I think that's pretty weird. But it's in the story, and it seems to be a pretty significant bit of the story because the writers wouldn't have put it in there by accident. So what's it saying? Why is it there? What does it mean? Uh, And we're going to think a bit about that. And for me, this story raises lots and lots of questions. So we're going to try and think about this text as we think about, as we answer some of those questions. The first thing, the first question it poses for me is it puts the question to me, what kind of world do I live in? What kind of world do you live in? Why is this the question the text poses? Well, this story says we live in a world where chaos is just around the corner. Because in, the, in, in Jesus' worldview, when Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, all the sort of the Semitic people around him, uh, the Hittites and the Akkadians and the Jews and all those who, who lived around, uh, for them, water was this primal symbol of chaos. And so this is a story about a bunch of people who follow Jesus and they go out onto the Sea of Galilee and suddenly they're overwhelmed and engulfed with chaos. Now, uh, that's that's an important thing to get our heads around, right? Because our wealth and our intellectual firepower and our professional success and our medical advancements all enable us for a long time for for long periods of our lives to live with the illusion that we don't live in a world of chaos, (laughs) that actually we're in control. And the world's working rather nicely for us, isn't it? Uh, There's a guy, uh, a Canadian psychologist, who's uh, getting a lot of airplay at the moment, called Jordan Peterson. Uh, You may have uh, read some of his stuff, uh, heard some of his stuff. He's a fascinating, fascinating intellectual. So he's, he's sort of a secular psychologist, taught at Harvard, teaches at the University of Toronto, has a clinical practice. But what's really interesting about Jordan Peterson is that he has like 500 hours of his lectures on YouTube, and they are massively popular, including a series like hour-long lectures on the Bible stories, particularly Genesis. And they're massively popular with young, secular men. And why are they popular? 
Well, because at least part of what he's grappling with is he's, he's making explicit what m- lots of young men in our civilization know, which is that we live in a world of chaos and no one's talking about that and, and no one's giving us skills to learn how to live with the chaos. And Peterson is going, let's go and look at what the Bible has to say about order and chaos and how in the battle against chaos we find order and in doing that we find meaning and purpose in life. A global phenomena, which is fascinating to me, because it's so true. We live in a world where the veneer of order is uh, thin and brittle. You know that, don't you? You know that just beneath the surface is chaos that threatens to overwhelm. You know, don't you, that you and I are really only one stupid decision away from plunging our worlds into complete and utter chaos. Think about it if you're in business. Uh, You're at work. It just takes one dumb decision. One dishonest choice. You know, rip off that customer. Hide that money from your boss. Change the amount of concrete, the amount of cement in your concrete mix to cut corners. May never emerge. But what happens when, you know, suddenly the building collapses and that one decision where someone said we can get an extra 10% on this contract if we just change the mix a little. Yeah, let's do that. One decision and chaos everywhere, right? And we know that in our families, right? If you're married, man, you know that, don't you? It's that one decision. The person you work with. Someone you meet when you're traveling. Chaos. Chaos, right? And we know it's, it's just there, right? And the waves and the storms of life overwhelm us. The one decision, and, and suddenly you're in a, it's that, that one conversation with the oncologist. Oh, you know, I've got bad news. Yeah, it's there. And that's the world we live in. <laughs> We don't like to think about it, but it's here, right? So here's the question. Here's what this text says. What's the key? What's the key to surviving in a world where chaos threatens to engulf us and sometimes does? What matters the most when you're in a world where chaos is all around? And what matters most is who's in your boat. Who's in your boat with you, right? Like, these are, these are fishermen, right? They've got a bunch of good people in their boat, and they're doing just fine. Now I look around here, and I suspect a lot of us have got a bunch of really great people in our boat. But it's not enough, is it? <laughs> in the end, the chaos is so scary that even these skilled fishermen, for whom this was their bread and butter, they are desperate. The boat's about to go down. It's being swamped. And so they look around and they find that there's someone else in their boat. He's just having a nap. Who's that? Well, they look around and they find that, you know, Jesus is in their boat. Here's the thing about life, right? I reckon. Uh, (laughs) I think God is in our boat. Now, you might not know he's in your boat with you. But he is. This is the amazing thing. 
the amazing claim of Christianity that God gets in the boat of humankind. And God gets in your particular boat and is with you. Even if you don't realize, because I think it's quite often the case that we are so busy in our lives fighting to, con- to keep the illusion of order out of the chaos of our lives, and we're working so hard and we're so confident that it's only at times of enormous extremity we suddenly go, oh my goodness, I'm actually going down. And then you look around and you go, you find that God's actually there with you. But of course, the problem with God being in the boat with these guys is what? I mean, what's God up to while they're drowning? He's having a nap. And, and isn't there lots of evidence to suggest in life that when we need God the most, he's having a nap? Don't you think that's the way it often works? Not always, but I mean, just think about it. Like, how often do we cry out to God and it's like he's asleep at the wheel, man? He's not even he's asleep down the back of the boat of your life. And you're asking for help and you're crying out to him and there's just stunning silence. That's confusing, isn't it? That's hard. I mean, I, I think about my life and I go, wow, God, you did. There were key moments in my life where uh, if I'd been God, I would have been a little more involved. Because I just needed a little bit of help and it just didn't come. God, were you asleep? What the heck? You know that. We all struggle with that. I mean, it's something we're not allowed to speak about often in church. You know, religious people, we get all these weird rules about what you're allowed to speak about. And it's like you've got to, I don't know, you've got to keep telling yourself, God's always there and he answers prayers. And yes, he does. But yes, he doesn't. And that's confusing and hard. It, he's in the boat. So we go, okay, God, you're in the boat. But you're asleep. So what do the disciples do? Come on, dude. Wake up. Wake up. We need some help. We need some help. And they ask the question that is, I think, one of the most profound questions that any of us can ever ask of God. Teacher, God, don't you care if I drown? Don't you care if the chaos overwhelms my life? Don't you care when my marriage ends, when my career gets blown up? Don't you care when my body gives up on me? Don't you care when my child is profoundly disabled? Don't you care when I battle with mental illness? Don't you care when the world is tearing itself apart in the Middle East? Don't you care? Haven't you ever asked God that question? Lots of evidence to suggest God's asleep. Lots of evidence to suggest that God doesn't care. But is it true? Well, uh, what does Jesus do? He gets up and uh, he rebukes the wind and says to the waves, Quiet, be still. The wind died down and it was completely calm. So Jesus says, I have power to do this. And by implication, I do care. Now, uh, just something to address, a bit of a philosophical uh, digression to think about. Uh, we, we are brought up in a world where we struggle to believe this could actually happen. 
Now, I'm not going to ask to see your hands, but in your heart of hearts, don't some of you think, yeah, that's just a nice story. I bet it didn't really happen in that way. I mean, they might have had like a bit of a rough landing and, and then just, you know, I think lots of us read this and we go, yeah, it's a bit of a fairy tale, right? Because it couldn't possibly happen like that because we can't speak and get material reality to conform to our words. Now, uh, we think that way because we live in a world and we're brought up to believe that the world is what's, what's really real and the only stuff that really exists is the material, the stuff you can see, taste, touch, smell, and feel, right? That's what's real. And, and the spirit world doesn't really exist. Now, uh, I don't think that's right. I think that worldview is fundamentally flawed, and it's quite easy to see how flawed it is if you, if you uh, work with me. Uh, uh, let me show you. Uh, it's, it's, it's not hard to understand that spirit, non-material being, can actually directly impact material reality. I'll give you an example. Uh, would you all, could you please now, uh, all, uh, and this isn't going to hurt much, could you please just raise your right hands? Just, that'd be lovely. If everyone could just do that. That'd be awesome. Great, okay, I see those hands. Thank you very much. You can put them down now. Now let me ask you a question. What caused your right hands to be raised? Your desire to please me, did I hear someone say? Your deep fear that you've joined a cult? <laughs> what, 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 caused, what caused your hand to go up? Was it a material, a purely material reality that acted on your hand that caused it to go up? No. What was it? This, let's pretend this isn't a rhetorical question. It was a choice? It was words. Words that aren't material. Words that are fundamentally spiritual in nature. How so? Well, they were my words that you heard. But what actually caused your hands to be raised were not my words, but what? Your words. Your words. You see, you thought about lifting up your hand, and your hand, as if by magic, lifted up. You didn't have to get some other thing to lift your hand up. You just... You thought. Now, thoughts are just unspoken words. So you spoke the word and material reality uh, responded just like that. Isn't that amazing? Now, m most scientists who work in the area of brain and mind, uh, the, at the, there are a handful who will say all of what we've just described, your brain functioning, can be reduced to the purely material. It's just some incredibly clever supercomputer. The majority of scientists, however, working in this area are a, a great deal more agnostic. And most of them would say there does seem to be over and above and beyond the purely material brain. There is a mind, a spiritual thing that thinks and has words, and it's that which acts on your body. So we've established in principle that a spiritual being, your mind, you, can actually directly act on a physical material thing, your hand. Oh, that's really good. What is, how does this relate to that? Well, my hypothesis, along with that of Christian philosophers for a couple of thousand years, is that God is present in the world as a spiritual being and is present to the material world in a, in an, in a similar way to the way our minds are present to our own physical bodies. 
So God's mind, God's words can act on all of material reality directly. Spirit can cause material change, uh, material reality to change. And the, uh, we have a limited taste of that. Our ability to do that is really limited and confined mostly to our body and then only to parts of our bodies. But once you've established that philosophically it's possible, and in this world it seems to work, it, it's not unreasonable to think, well, this, this could actually be, if the God of the Bible exists, how God works in the world, right? That makes some sense to me. So I think it's quite reasonable to say that God woke up in the back of the boat. Wake up, Jesus. Don't you care? Yeah, I do. Okay, waves, calm down. Wind, calm down. Just in the same way that you sat there and said to yourself, arm lift up. That's how God interacts with the world. And he does that. Now, uh, you've got to be really careful what you ask God to do, don't you? Be careful what you ask for. Because uh, you would think, wouldn't you? I would think. If I was one of the disciples, I would be very spiritually insightful. And I would, uh, I would listen to this and I'd see this and I'd go, yeah, you beauty, Jesus. Oh, fantastic. What's, there? What's the disciples' response? What is the disciples' response? Well, Jesus says, why are you so afraid? And they were terrified. I mean, it's not just they're afraid, they're actually overcome. Why? Why would they be terrified? Well, you've just woken up God. (laughs) I'd be a little scared if I just... I mean, when you're a kid, right... Uh, do you ever remember waking up your parents or your grandparents when they were like having an afternoon nap? Like, how did that work out for you, right? Uh, or when your kids wake you up when you're in the middle of your lovely afternoon nap, how do you feel? You're grumpy, right? So now they've woken up God. God's done this thing. Now they're terrified. Why? Because God, God's in my boat. God's, I've woken him up. And uh, if I was scared to begin with of the chaos... How much more scared might I be of the being who has such power over the chaos? I mean, that's a scary thought, right? Because I started with a question, God, you know, Jesus, don't you care? Uh, He hasn't really shown me, I mean, he's answered, you know, I've woken him up. He might just have done this because he was grumpy with me and shutting me up. What if he's, what if he doesn't really care? What if he's not really good? I mean, how do you, like, imagine, you see, we, spiritually, we, we, we all go, oh, it would just be, it would just be lovely if God showed up and I could see God. Really? Imagine being in the presence of unlimited energy. Limitless, infinite energy. That's what God is at one level. Unlimited energy, more incandescently glorious and powerful than every sun in the entire created reality. Uh, that's the power, that's, the, that's God, right? Now, how do, you, how do you approach unlimited energy? 
Well, carefully. <laughs> Scary, right? We, we sometimes, now, there's a lot in the Bible that does say that God is approachable and loving, but there's a lot in the Bible that says, listen, man, it's terrifying. <laughs> I think what we do very often is we domesticate God because actually really what we want, if we're honest, and we may not be honest, I appreciate that, but if we're honest, what we want is a God who will do what we want when we want it, essentially under our control. So God, I'm going to drown. Won't you calm the waves? Yes. Holy crap, you can calm the waves. Maybe you won't just always do what I want you to do. <laughs> Maybe actually fundamentally what I've done is I've encountered a being who is utterly, completely beyond my control and who's completely powerful. And that's te- isn't that terrifying? I don't know if you think about it enough. There's this uh, wonderful story in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, right? Back in the Old Testament, where one of God's prophets, one of God's people, has an encounter with God. And you and I go, yay, Isaiah's in the temple, and then the temple are full of God, and Isaiah says, yippee, that's awesome. Let me give you a great big hug, God. Way, you're here to do exactly what I want. What does he do? Well, it's interesting. He's terrified, just like the disciples. And why is he terrified? Because he says, he says in the presence of, 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 just, of God, he says, man, I am really seriously screwed up. He says, woe is me, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And he's utterly terrified, because here's the thing. Uh, the experience in all of our lives of greatness and glory in someone else shines a spotlight on our own inadequacies, doesn't it? Like, it's just, that's the way it works, right? Uh, so, I'm busy here speaking, blah, 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 that's all awesome. But imagine, this, oh, he's dead now, but imagine he popped in. Imagine Billy Graham was in the front seat here. And I was speaking in front, so I've done my best, and I'm, I'm a preacher, and I'm winding everyone up, and I'm talking about Christianity. And then there's Billy Graham. What would I do? I'd say, woe is me. I'm a preacher of unclean lips. (laughs) His glory would shine a light on my own inadequacies and shame. You know what that's like. You think you're a great singer. Hey, I'm a great musician. I can sing wonderfully. And then you actually hear someone who's transcendently magnificent. And you go, I don't think I ever want to open my mouth again. (laughs) So it is with God, with energy with life, with purity. When we encounter God, it's terrifying for two reasons. One, as we said, we discover we can't control Him. That's scary. But discovering that we can't control Him, we also discover our own manifest unworthiness. Like the disciples would have gone, yep, I'm a pretty lousy sailor right now. (laughs) The disciples would have gone, yeah, I thought I was in control. I thought I was pretty good at this whole being on the sea thing. Woe is me. Because, you know, I'm really not very good at all, am I? Glory shows up our own inadequacies. So they're scared. And look, that's, a, that's, a right, that's right to be scared. <laughs> I actually think a lot of us uh, in our culture uh, really don't want to wake God up. Do we? We don't want to wake God up because waking God up 
is scary because we have to confront then, with, it strips away the illusion that we're in control. If I really need God, it strips away the illusion that we're in control. It also exposes our own profound inadequacies. And what it does, finally, is if I wake God up and he calms the storms and brings order out of chaos, then he might ask stuff of me. Like, what do I do on the other side of the lake? When we get off, (laughs) and then God looks at me and says, hey, I'd like you to do this for me, what am I to say? Uh, No. Like, when, when you're dealing with that kind of a being, you don't say no to them, do you? Well, you'd be relatively foolish to say no, wouldn't you? If he can do that to the wind and the waves, imagine what he could do to you and me. So mostly, I suspect, most of us are really happy when God's in the back of our boat, fast asleep and out of our way. And then occasionally, when we're absolutely desperate, we wake him up, but we try to avoid it at all costs. So, the rest of Mark's gospel, this story, seeks to address the question and help and present us with a picture of Jesus that says, you know what? Jesus is a God who loves to be woken up by us. And when we wake him up, he is good and trustworthy. And still a little scary, but you can trust him because all he wants for you is what's good for you. And yes, he's going to ask an enormous amount from you, but only ever what's going to be good for you. That's... That's actually what the rest of Mark's gospel does, is it shows us how to deal with our fear of God, our fear of Jesus. How so? Well, uh, read the rest of the gospel, and, uh, and what you'll discover when you read the rest of the gospel, this story, and here's a spoiler alert, you know, if you, if you haven't come to the end yet, um, at, at the end of the story, Jesus dies. Okay, that's, I know, it's, it's disappointing, isn't it, really? It, uh, but it's okay because he rises again, so it's all going to be good. But if you haven't got there yet, just, just read it read it, and you'll see. Uh, and he dies. And so what's going on when Jesus dies? Well, it's interesting. When you read the accounts of Jesus' death, what you, what you see is God himself in Jesus Christ being utterly overwhelmed by the forces of chaos and destruction and disintegration. If water for the ancient Hebrews was a primal symbol of chaos, then death is the ultimate experience of chaos and disintegration. All of life is a movement from chaos to order, according to the Bible, and, uh, and as much as we move from chaos into order, death is a sliding back into complete disintegration at a, at a, at a spiritual, at a social, at a biological level. We disintegrate and we, we're undone. What's going on? at the end of the gospel story, when Jesus dies. Well, the storm is coming over him, the squalls, the utter chaos of evil and sin and uh, injustice overwhelms him and death itself overwhelms Jesus. And this time, he doesn't still the storm. In fact, the, the text is really clear. It says he could have saved himself, but he chose not to. Why? Why, when, why, could he, why could he still the storm for the disciples on the water, but when he is being destroyed by the ultimate storm, why didn't he save himself? Well, this is the incredible thing about Christianity. That the God of order, who has complete power over all of material reality, 
this God of order steps into the storm that destroys all of human life, steps into our chaos and ultimately steps into our death and allows evil and injustice and suffering and Satan and chaos to utterly pull him apart. And the ordered life, a life that for all eternity had been in a place of complete wholeness and order is disintegrated into utter chaos. Why? Well, he says, I'm going to do it because I love you. He says, I'll do it so that In the absorbing of the chaos, I'm going to heal it so that you can have order and life and not death. That's the chaos that is the end point of our spiritual journeys without God. That's the chaos that we're destined to death. And Jesus says, you know what? I'll take it. I'll take it. The Lord of life dies. The author of creation dies becomes uncreated. So that you and I, the ones who massively participate in evil and sin and chaos, we get life, we get healing, we get put back together and recreated. Isn't that amazing? Why does Jesus do that? The Bible says because he loves us. So here's the answer. Should you be scared of Jesus? Yes and no. It's a bit like when Lucy in the uh, line, the witch in the wardrobe, is asking questions of Aslan, the God figure. And Lucy asks, is he safe? And the answer is no, he's not safe. But he's good. He's good. So let me ask you, who's in your boat? Who's in your boat? Have you woken Jesus up? Have you asked him to come in? And Are you trusting him? The one who let chaos do its worst to him and absorbed it all for you and says, I will get you to the other side. Have you woken him up? Are you working with him in the boat day by day? Here's an amazing promise I think it's a messianic psalm looking forward to Jesus. It says this, Psalm 29, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. It's just a Hebrew word for chaos, watery chaos. The Lord sits enthroned over the watery chaos. The Lord, the Messiah, is enthroned as king forever. And then what happens? What happens when Jesus is awake, when Jesus is in your boat, when you're working with Jesus day by day, moment by moment, because you know he's so good and loves you so much that he died for you and he's so powerful that he even triumphed over death itself, what happens? Well, the Lord gives strength to his people and he blesses his people with peace. If you want to get through life in this world and the next, well, God says, I'll give you strength and I'll give you peace. Here's how I'm going to do it. You just work with Jesus. You just work with Jesus. You let him in. You serve him. Scary. It's going to make some demands of you. For sure. Your life will never be the same. (laughs) But what you're going to get, sisters and brothers, what you're going to get is you're going to get divine strength. And you're going to get divine peace. Shalom. A right ordering of everything. And oh God, don't we need that.
need that? And don't we need a world full of people who have that? Let's pray. Uh, Our Lord and God, we want to acknowledge that you are in the boat with us. We're sorry that we, we ignore you a lot of the time. We're sorry that we really are quite happy that you're asleep, quite frankly. But right now, we want to beg you to wake up and save us. We want to beg you to, to, to wake up and work with us. We want to beg you, I want to beg you for myself uh, and for each of us here that, that day by day we'll work with you, we'll follow you, that we'll have this intimate partnership with you, trusting you, relying on you. Jesus, where where some of us are really still struggling to believe that you care and that you're good, right now, by your Holy Spirit, just, just change our hearts. Bring about that shift. Only you can do it, Lord. Only you can give us the courage to actually wake you up and trust you. So just do this, I pray. And then fill us with your strength and your peace as we go out into your world. Amen.